Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Science Friday is supported by Random House, publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi a memoir from a doctor-turned-patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at prh.com slash air. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Fledo. This hour, we're opening up the Sci-Fi Vault and setting the Wayback Machine to 1999, 22 years ago. Our destination, a conversation with writer John McPhee about his geologic epic, Annals of the Former World. Let me set the scene for you. When this conversation was recorded, the UN was struggling with how to aid refugees from the war in Kosovo. Bill Clinton was president. And then Texas Governor George W. Bush had just announced his intention to seek the Republican presidential nomination. And the day after this conversation, the Dallas Stars defeated the Buffalo Sabres in triple overtime of Game 6 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Sad news for me, Buffalo is where I got started in radio. But the good news, McPhee's book, Annals of the Former World, first published in 1998, won the 1999 Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. So have a listen. A literary legend is going to join us this hour on Science Friday. John McPhee is a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine and the author of 25 books on subjects as diverse as oranges, the Pine Barrens, and nuclear physics. Two of his books, Encounters with the Arc Druid and the Curve of Binding Energy, were nominated for National Book Awards in the science category. In 1977, he received the award in literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and more recently, the coveted Pulitzer Prize for his latest book, Annals of the Former World. He also teaches nonfiction writing at Princeton University and joins us today from the campus there. John McPhee, welcome to the program. Hello, Ira. Hi. Nice to be here. Thank you. Hi, you know, everybody's interested when they pick up this huge volume, and it's it's a it's a big one, um, and a lot of good reading in it. The Annals of the Former World. It started out very innocently, did it not? As a short little piece you were going to be doing for the New Yorker. Yes, it did. Um, I had the idea to do a talk of the town piece in the New Yorker, a short unsigned article about a road cut outside New York City somewhere, and go there, describe the history of the of that rock, its environment of deposition or whatever, and tell the story in the first person plural. And a couple of days later, I'm all done. That's how this started. And while I was still thinking about it and talking to the professor in Princeton who was going to do it with me, I got the idea of going up 
the Adirondack Northway through all those beautiful outcroppings in that in a really stunning road and maybe extend the piece a little. And he said, his name is Ken DeFaze and he's a Princeton professor who's been with me through this whole project counseling me. He said, not on this continent. He said, <laughs> he said if you want to do that sort of thing, go west, go across the structure. Because the way North America is anatomically organized, all this stuff goes north and south. The, mm -hmm. the, the physiographic provinces, the, the rock, the, the, the formed Appalachians and the Rockies and so forth. And uh, he said, go across the structure. And so I got the idea to uh, really go across it, to describe North America from one ocean to the other in a geological way. And uh, that's when I fell in so far over my head that I didn't know what I was doing. And that was 21 years ago. Well, so did you have to teach yourself everything about it? Because you, there are so many extensive references. You, you speak like you're an expert geologist in there. Did, you, did it take a long time to learn all, this, all these well, things? Well, I mean, I hope I learned something in, in 20, 20 years that the, the project took. Mm -hmm. um, in, I had studied geology in school and and uh in a very good course it was basically geomorphology i think and and uh, all through the years i talked with geologists about things in various books of mine trying to get it right where a little paragraph had come up describing something geological and uh but i re basically i didn't know much at all and and uh, i just found myself i mean ner nervously in deep but i learned a great deal i i went to courses I went to, um, a lot of it was one-on-one. -on -one. I traveled uh, for years with geologists and they, they taught me right there in the field. And I read, of course, a great many scientific papers and I have a shelf of basic textbooks. It must be four or five feet wide. And, and uh, slowly I, something soaked in. Mm. And one of the great things about your book is that, that you managed to take a science that most of us probably don't know too much about or, or appreciate it, and you show us how it really shaped our world. And, and one example in particular you give is, is New York City, uh, a place that seems about as remote, remote from the natural world as you can get. I, I like to go out into Central Park and watch the stones that are left over from the ice sheets that used to be down here during the Ice Age. But you even have a more interesting story about how geology shaped New York in a different way. And the skyline and how, why we have skyscrapers in certain places in New York. How about if I read that paragraph to you? That's great. I was with Anita Harris. And Anita Harris is a U.S. Geological Survey paleontologist who, uh, a conodont paleontologist who grew up in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. And she says that she went into geology to get out of there. And... Uh, she and I went to New York one day, and as we were approaching the city from her cousin's place in New Jersey and looking at the Manhattan skyline, uh, uh, now I'm going to start reading from the book. Anita asked me if I had ever wondered why there was a low saddle in the city between the stands of tall buildings. I said I'd always assumed that the skyline was shaped by human considerations, commercial, historical, ethnic. Who could imagine a little Italy in a skyscraper, a linoleum warehouse up in the clouds? The towers of Midtown, as one might imagine, were emplaced in substantial rock, Anita said, rock that once had been heated near the point of melting and had recrystallized and had been heated again, had recrystallized, and while not particularly competent, was more than adequate to hold up those buildings. 
most important, it was right at the surface. You could see it in all its micaceous glitter, shining like silver in the outcrops of Central Park. 450 million years in age, it was called Manhattan Schist. All through Midtown, it was at or near the surface. But in the region south of 30th Street, it began to fall away. And at Washington Square, it descended abruptly. The whole saddle between Midtown and Wall Street would be underwater were it not filled with many tens of fathoms of glacial till. The ice sheet brought it. So there sat Greenwich Village, Soho, Chinatown on material that could not hold up a great deal more than a golf tee. On the ground up wreckage of the Ramapos, on crushed Catskill, on odd bits of Nyack and Tenafly, which the ice brought. In the Wall Street area, the bedrock does not return to the surface, but it comes within 40 feet and is accessible for the footings of the tallest buildings in town. New York grew high on the advantage of its hard rock, and New York being what it is, cities all over the world have attempted to resemble it. The skyline of nuclear Houston, for example, is a simulacrum of Manhattan's skyline. Houston rests on 12,000 feet of Montmorillonitic clay, a substance that, when moist, turns into mobile jelly. After taking so much money out of the ground, the oil companies of Houston have put hundreds of millions back in. Houston is the world's foremost city in fat basements. Its tall buildings are magnified duck pins bobbing in their own mire. That's a great description. I have to. I have to also mention that uh, I noticed that while you were reading some of your own work, you were actually editing some of it along the way. Does the writing well, process ever stop? <laughs> well, it doesn't stop when you're when you're reading something on NPR and realize that <laughs> that that if you're saying that there are little bits of Tenafly and Ramapo in, uh, in 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 Soho, you better explain it. I noticed, and, and anybody who reads the book can't help but notice that you. Uh, you have certain characters, and they're, they're real-life people in, in the book, uh, geologists that you find along the way who stand out and, uh, and who become almost our friends. And I'm, I'm talking uh, in one case here about David Love, who's the geologist who guides you through Wyoming. And you say in your book that he is the only person in the history of American geology who has served as a senior author of a state map twice. And that, I gather, is quite an accomplishment. Now, tell us about the, the work that goes on into making a state map. Well, as I said somewhere in, these, uh, in this book, uh, a geologic map is a textbook on one sheet of paper. Just a tremendous amount of geology goes into the representation that's on that map. Basically, a geologic map is a picture of the um, uppermost rock at, uh, in a given area, like say a state, Wyoming. Uh, if you were looking at it aerially, the the top rock is the one depicted in the map. If soil is there, it's the it's still the top rock below the soil. If glacial stuff is there, that's usually left off. Stuff that a, the glacier smeared over the over the bedrock. Uh, but and so you see the relationship of the uppermost rock in the rock column. You don't you don't see everything going down below it. Uh, uh, and uh, it's a synthesis, a geologic map of pretty much everything that's been written about this, uh, about about the rock in the state. And uh, so you can see the amount of work that'd be involved in it. And yeah. in 1919, whatever, David Love was the senior author of the first one. And I think in 1985, the, the present map was published. 
And he'd done this twice, which uh, means he's, you know, he's lived, uh, he lives 300 years or something in effect. Mm. Did you have to be, be, did you have yeah. to be, did you have to become a map maker to under, to really understand how he does these things? Or, yeah, or no, Well, not a map maker, but I'll, I've always loved maps. I just uh, can, can just get into a map room and, and lose all sense of time. And uh, Princeton has a wonderful map room in the geology library, a really superb one. And, you know, I just go there and, and I love to hang around and look at these maps. I don't have, I, I uh, don't have difficulty f figuring out where I am on them. Mm -hmm. Get inspiration from them? Yes, but also, also if I'm if I'm doing a piece about anything, I mean, like right now, I've been doing something that involves Holyoke, Massachusetts, and I'll I'll go down to that same library and look at the topographic maps, the 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 uh, largest scale maps of um, Holyoke, so I can hmm. just see the layout and pick up. Sometimes you pick up wonderful place names that way, and you and you get accurate distances and so on. But the maps always suggest something. Hmm. We need to take a break. You're listening to a conversation with writer John McPhee, recorded 22 years ago in June of 1999, about his book, Annals of the Former World. More Rock Talk with John McPhee in just a moment. Stay with us. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. This hour, we're dipping into the Science Friday archives for a conversation with author John McPhee, recorded in June of 1999, about his wonderful book, Annals of the Former World, first published in 1998, and it became the 1999 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction. Can you sit down and write something once, like Isaac Asimov used to do, and be happy with it? Or how many times do you have to go over and refinish it, and rework it, and rework it? Paul Lenny. Um, Isaac Asimov... Whatever he did, I'm sure I don't do. It's it's a uh, it's a process of uh, many 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 revisions. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, four trips through the whole manuscript, but there's just countless uh, uh, subdivisions of that. Mm -hmm. But I I work in a, I mean with about four full drafts. A first draft that takes a very long time, and then the others take less. But uh, you know, there, there's a romantic idea about writers that uh, who are so facile that they quote don't have to blot a line, <laughs> and uh, but boy, that that is not this writer. And actually, I feel that the one one of the basic uh, fundamentals about writing is that you do have a chance to change things. Mm -hmm. You can work it over and improve it until you see something you want. It is. It really is like sculpture and artwork, is it not? That you can just change it a little here, move a little there. Make pushing it, words around, I guess. Yeah, make it look exactly the way you want to and then come back a little bit later and say, I didn't like that. Let me go back to the way it used to be. Uh, how do you teach your students to be writers? Or can you teach people to be writers? Well, an analogy that I 
have used uh, now and again about that is that I, I think I, I see myself more as a, a coach um, or say a swimming teacher, which is something I used to do years ago. And the people I was teaching swimming all knew how to swim. What I was trying to do was to help them swim better, to streamline them, to to make them more efficiently, help them more efficiently to use the their relationship with the water. And that's very analogous to talking to people about writing. I mean, I'm not teaching anyone to write. I'm I'm just helping people with with little ideas that uh, they may or may not pick up from me. Uh, I have no way of knowing what it is that sticks with with them. I just like talking to them privately about their compositions. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phones to Nancy in Portland, Oregon. Hi, Nancy. Hi. I don't have my radio on, so I can't tell whether you can hear me or not. But uh, I turned turned the mute on. I just wanted to. I don't have a question for Mr. McPhee. I just want to tell him that I'm a fan of his and have been ever since I read, um, oh gosh, The Survival of the Bark Canoe. Having been raised in Canada, born and raised in Canada, I was thrilled with that. I I think the thing that I really wanted to thank him for was the purity and beauty of his writing. Um, I, uh, you, I, I can get as lost in his... Uh, nonfiction as I can in a good fiction book. Mm. And I've read, uh, I think the fun thing for me was when I moved from Ohio to uh, Portland, uh, my son um, joined me in Laramie, Wyoming, as I came alone along on my, in my car. And he happened to have with him, and I don't know whether it was uh, rising from the plains or basin and range, but he had borrowed the book from a friend. And as we drove from uh, Laramie up through to uh, the Tetons, I read aloud to him and myself uh, the, about the terrain we were going through, and it was it was just terrific. It was fun. It was interesting to see what he was describing, and um, I went. I guess uh, maybe he can tell me whether it was rising from the plains or basin and range. I have basin and range here, but it's been some years since I've read it. Well, thank you for calling, Nancy. You're welcome. Uh, thank you, Nancy. Thanks very much. It was rising from the plains. Mm-hmm. And you and the Annals of the Former World. It's a compendium. It's it's five volumes. Did and the and the Four of the volumes are, are pieces you've done before, right? And the fifth right. volume is an original, is the is is new stuff. It happened like this when when I got together the, uh, the that project and and got the idea of traversing the entire continent. I did so for the next year and a half, thinking I was doing a piece of writing that I would do in a year or two, and that was that was going to be it. And when I piled up all my notes and I'd traveled with Anita and David Love and and uh, uh, Eldridge Moores in California and Ken DeFaze, uh I realized that I couldn't cope with this in less than 10 years and that I wouldn't be doing anything else. And I, I'm a mm-hmm. general nonfiction writer. So I had built a structure for the whole piece of writing and it separated itself into 
uh, several parts well enough, uh, still following that same structure. And so I decided to write them uh, separately and then go off to other things in between. And that's how it it, it developed. And so uh, parts of it were published along the way, always saying in the flaps that these titles were gathering under the overall title, Annals of the Former right. World. Uh, and so I finally completed it in 1998, but what I was doing was following the the, the outline that, that had been deve developed in, in 1979. Uh, you think you've got geology out of your system now? No, <laughs> I don't think I have it out of my system, but I'll tell you that I'm, I'm writing about fish. You're writing about fish. <laughs> That's right. The only rocky thing in a fish is an otolith. Uh-huh. These fish are marine animals or lake fish or all fish? Or? They're, they're anadromous fish. <laughs> you write in such great detail. Do you carry, how do you keep track of the detail in your book? I well, mean, you have a, do you have a tape recorder with you? Are you taking notes as it's going on? How do both. You... Yeah. Both. I mean, first of all, I always, notes, notes in a notebook are my preferred way of uh, soaking things up. But if someone speaks too rapidly and is also articulate and doesn't seem to care about it. I I uh, use a tape recorder yeah. uh, because if I can't keep up, what can I do? The tape recorder does. Or I'm in Vermont, say, as I, uh, one of the passages in Annals of the Former World, and there's 14 celebrated Appalachian geologists arguing over an outcrop. Can I take down an, uh, <laughs> all this? But so you, what you do is put the little tape recorder on the outcrop crop and let them argue and the tape recorder listens to them so i do uh, supplement the note taking with a tape recorder when i have to let's go to uh aileen in oakland california hi aileen hi thanks for taking my call um i'm a big fan of uh, mr mcphee and i've always wondered though why he doesn't put more maps in his books i'm a geologist and uh yeah i, I like thought that I, it would yeah it would... i agree with you on that one yeah so i'm gonna maps. take the answer off the air thanks so much thanks yeah, put some more maps in those books. <laughs> well, I'm cranky. I, I, um, first of all, I always assumed that a map was handy to a person who wanted to look something up. And uh, in Annals of the Former World, we did do maps from a U.S. Geological Survey base mm -hmm. uh, map of the landforms and drainages of North America. We, uh, um, with uh, Stuart Allen, a cartographer in Medford, Oregon, we. Uh, we made 25 maps to specifically address uh, certain places in the book. Um, so I hope that that, that, that helps, Aline. Well, we'll find out after, uh, after she's done reading it. Let's go to Ian in San Diego. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Hi, Ira. Um, I understand that um, your, your uh, guest, uh, Mr. McAfee, wrote The Curve of the Binding Energy. Is that true? That's right. Um, well... The Curve of the Binding Energy was one of the more influential books I've ever read. I, I think it might be in, instructive to your listeners to hear how I came across this book. Um, I originally um, was given a book by my wife, who was a librarian, called The Mushroom, or Mushroom, or something like that, uh, written by a student at Princeton um, who had Freeman Dyson as his um, instructor. And uh, he proposed to do a term paper. He was not the brightest. In fact, he was at the bottom of the class almost. A paper on a terrorist group building a nuclear device. And Freeman Dyson, who is one of the uh, physicists on the Manhattan Project, um, thought,
thought this was rather funny and this guy wouldn't come up with anything. But when the guy came to pick up his paper, he found that it had been classified. Not only had this guy figured out how to build a bomb, but he had fully figured out how to, how to build one which could have a, a yield uh, in the multi-kiloton range. And one of the references that he cited was the curve of the binding energy. And uh, so I, uh, I tracked down this book to find out, and sure enough, uh, uh, I believe it was about uh, Teddy Taylor, who was one of the foremost uh, um, builders, or, or at least designers, of, of uh, fission uh, bombs uh, shortly after the Second World War. And, he, and uh, you gave a complete description there of, of how to, to build a bomb and <laughs> all the things you had to watch for and all that, that stuff, which was a real revelation. So my question to you is this, following up on that, um, one of the things that that student mentioned was that perhaps, that he was tracked down by the Pakistani government in order to get the, um, uh, the, the mechanisms for building the bomb and all of that, and, um, and now that's become a reality. Pakistan now has a, a you know, efficient device. And what are your thoughts about, um, about nuclear devices being built by, um, you know, terrorist groups and small people, small groups in the uh, 21st century following a lot of the descriptions uh, given in the in the now public domain uh, material in things like the curve of the binding energy the released Manhattan project and so on well the reason the curve of binding energy was written was because of that fear uh, among other things there there your account of all this is not uh, Holy, I mean, it suggests that one could read the curve of binding energy and uh, build a bomb from that. That's just not so. And nor was it true of, I think it was David Michaelis's thesis here in Princeton. But the general idea that a small group of people or even one person can do it was Taylor's idea. And he felt that it was not being, um, it was not being given credence. And uh, so this is why that he, he talked to me about it. And of course, I would fear that in the future like anyone else. And, and uh, uh, But they wouldn't, they wouldn't learn how to do it from my book because the, the book stops short of that in all respects. So you don't, you, you don't feel guilty that you had anything to do with someone building a bomb no, in Pakistan? No, I, I, I uh, thought long and hard about whether to discuss this subject at all. And as a matter of fact, in the interviewing that I did at Los Alamos and... Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Brookhaven and everywhere, I spent more than half of my interviewing time asking people to tell me why I should not write this versus why I should. And uh, the net of it was that it seemed to be a good idea to do it. Mm -hmm. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to a 1999 conversation with author John McPhee about geology and the craft of writing. Hi, one of the uh, one of the more fascinating parts of geology, and and, and you talk about it lots in all your in your, your works, are the the uh, road cuts that you find, and you're able to become an instant geologist by studying them and actually going back. and You mentioned that in a few places you can go back billions of years in some of these road cuts that you find around the country. Yeah. I remember many years ago stopping by, I think, outside of Denver uh, for, on my way back from Boulder, Colorado. There was an, actually there's an exit ramp onto a road cut. And then with a whole diorama of what you're looking at across the whole basin there and the whole flatlands of Colorado. Well, that is one spectacular place where, in, where above Denver. where You know what goes, I'm talking about, yeah. Well, it goes through the so-called 
hogback, which is Cretaceous rock that uh, a curious sort of stegosaurus looking, uh, looks like the back of a dinosaur or something that crawls along the mountain front, right in, uh, uh, parallels the Rockies for hundreds of miles. And that, that road cut is spectacular outside Denver. And there's actually geological exhibits there. Yeah. And uh, these, and you know, I, I, I don't think enough people, enough states or localities put, you know, pay enough attention to these to turn them into learning centers or educational points for people who are interested in them. Well, I wish they did in more places. For example, if you go from uh, in Wyoming, if you go through uh, the where the the Wind River goes into Wind River Canyon, and it comes out the other end and and is the Bighorn River, and the reason is that. Uh, the uh, nobody understood for a long while that it was the same river that it, that it when it looks a Lincoln Tunnel or something it goes in one side and comes out the other and and uh, mm -hmm. the state of Wyoming has labeled the rock in Wind River Canyon and it's it, with with its age and its and its type and it's extremely interesting to do and this could be done in many more places in the country you know when the astronauts went to the moon they looked back on earth and they saw the tiny little blue marble there so to speak um, they had a feeling about the fragility of earth and you go in just the opposite and you go get closer and closer to the rocks and and and, and look very closely at the, their makeup is there a different kind of sense of awe well, what is the feeling you get at when you come away from traversing the the, the whole country looking at the basement of the earth here? Well, I don't know. I mean, because, you know, everything over all those years involved rock outcrops exposed by the mm -hmm. interstate or exposed somewhere else. And the, the uh, I guess, unconformities are, are a place where you can be moved. Um, if you can put your finger, as you can in the... Um, Delaware Water Gap, for example, as you can in thousands and thousands of places, you put your finger in one spot and it's it, it's there's two sides. There's a break there, and the two sides are say 10 million years apart, and your finger covers the 10 million years. Um, it's uh, it's impressive. Yeah. It's not. I mean, in its own up close way. In the, you mentioned the astronauts looking at the little thing, but you know when plate tectonics was. Uh, more controversial than it is now. The theory is pretty much in place and people argue about it somewhat less. But in, in the 1970s, when it was brand new, uh, it was um, it was much argued. And, and one of the early astronauts was the, the, uh, a, ge a trained geologist, Harrison Schmidt. And he's up in the air and he is looking in space and he's looking down at the AFAR triangle at, he's looking at, at Africa and and uh, Arabia, and he's looking at the Red Sea, and you can see, just like a jigsaw puzzle, you can see the Earth coming apart there. Mm -hmm. It's about five million years that uh, that that has taken for the Red Sea to develop, and so it's all very new. And he said, uh, "One look at that, and it'll make a believer out of anybody, <laughs> a believer in plate tectonics." I'm talking with author John McPhee. We need to take a short break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to a 1999 conversation with author John McPhee. He's talking about writing, geology, and more. Let's go to the phones. Lots of folks uh, want to talk to you. And let's go to Ben in Dallas. Hi, Ben. Well, hello there. 
First, I want to thank John for the hundreds of hours of pleasure he has given me being able to read his books. Uh, in fact, he's exp- in- inspired me to go do some research on my own. I guess the last place I went was to the Atchafalaya uh, 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 basin there where uh, nature is being fought. And the Corps tells me they've got it under control now, so <laughs> hopefully that's the case. Um, the uh, the question I have is is John you've you've got such a variety of topics that you cover so you're obviously doing a great deal of research. What is the ratio of time you spend on the road doing your research and visiting with people uh, compared to the amount of time that you spend uh, uh, actually doing the writing? Well, I I do have an answer for that, and it may surprise you, but I mean if I'm on the road. I once figured out that for every day that I was out on the road researching things out there, I spent 10 in my office at home. Wow. And the, but of course that, I mean, the first phase is to go out with people, travel with geologists, travel in Alaska, whatever it is. But, but then, of course, before I start writing, there's a great deal of time at home reading about the subject and, and uh, sorting over those notes and, and, and doing background reading and so on. So that's all part of the mm-hmm. of, be, of being home. But uh, in in the Alaska project was was uh, other than this one the longest I remember. And it was about three years that I worked on that. And in that time, I would go up to Alaska for four months, for three months, for two months, and back to Princeton and back up there after several months. And uh, so that. It, it in a three-year period, there were maybe four trips, more or less like that. I, I wanted to be there in the four seasons. You really seem to have a penchant for finding the right people to talk to. Also, is that through referral or, or your research? It's referral, and, and it's it's. I've always felt that it was luck. I mean, I mean, of course, you don't know who you didn't meet, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't know what, but but. Uh, uh, they indeed have been an amazing array of people. And I, uh, if you get into a subject and then you just start, you know, talking to people and hanging around the subject for a while, sometimes that leads to the person, as it was the case with Ted Taylor in The Curve of Binding Energy. I want to ask you uh, to read another chapter from your book, another passage from your book about the uh, the concept of geologic time. It's really something very difficult for people to understand, is it not, about how long geologic time is and how it's hard for us to get a handle on it. Uh, yes, indeed it is. And geologists are forever uh, trying to find and metaphors to cope with this question, to try to give a sense of time, the relationship between our sense of time and the Earth's, the, the, the uh, vast difference, how to express that, so on. And this passage uh, attempts to uh, address that as follows. When a volcano lets fly, or an earthquake brings down a mountainside, people look upon the event with surprise and report it to each other as news. People in their whole history have seen comparatively few such events, and only in the past couple of hundred years have they begun to sense the patterns the events represent. Human time, regarded in the perspective of geologic time, is much too thin to be discerned, the mark invisible at the end of a ruler. 
If geologic time could somehow be seen in the perspective of human time, on the other hand, sea level would be rising and falling hundreds of feet. Ice would come pouring over continents as quickly and as quickly go away. Yucatans and Floridas would be under the sun one moment and underwater the next. Oceans would swing open like doors. Mountains would grow like clouds and come down like melting sherbet. Continents would crawl like amoebae. Rivers would arrive and disappear like rain streaks down an umbrella. Lakes would go away like puddles after rain. And volcanoes would light the earth as if it were a garden full of fireflies. At the end of the program, man shows up, his ticket in his hand. Almost at once, he conceives of private property, dimension stone, and life insurance. When a Mount St. Helens assaults his sensibilities with an ash cloud 11 miles high, he writes a letter to the New York Times recommending that the mountain be bombed. <laughs> that really happened? Yes, I read that. I remember the letter. <laughs> Boy, we really think we're something. I mean, that's part of the thing. We, we really think we're something. And then you go and you look at, you know, as you mentioned before, how many billions and millions of years you can cover with just the palm of your hand when you go to a, a good outcropping of rock. Right. And see how short a time we really occupy on this, sir. Ted, in, is it Roselle, New Jersey? Yes. Hi, Ted. All right. Uh, what a pleasure it is to talk to John. You've been so much, you've given me so much pleasure over the years, from the Pine Barrens through Basin and Range and Assembling California, through Alaska. Uh, I'm mostly housebound, but uh, I travel with you and I, I appreciate it so much. Uh, I would like to ask you a question about a book that you don't talk much about, The Lemon Yellow Deltoid Pumpkin Seed. Yes. Well, what, what, what did you want to ask? What, whatever happened to that project? That project is uh, still where it was when, when the uh, book was finished in uh, 1973 or four, whenever it was. The flight tests occurred. The um, the company still exists. the The president is still um, trying to interest people in the data. However, the mission has changed over the years, and they were he was attempting to do some aircraft that would do radar picketing and so on, and it, so it isn't really quite quite the same anymore. But if there was one word that that characterized that story, it was perseverance. I mean, they've been going on for forty years or whatever. Well, that, it it was a remarkable story, and I I had to admire the the will to to. to keep on going that the man ex um, exhibited. But um, uh, I guess it's just another one of those great inventions that uh, didn't pan out, like the electric um, tuning fork. Right. And uh, recently there's been an announcement from a major company, Lockheed or something like that, saying that they're going to be doing something like it, that is using helium to lift uh, big loads in, in a machine, something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks for your remarks, Ted. You're welcome. Goodbye. There's a lot of. There's always a lot of talk about bringing back helium-powered, all types of blimps and dirigibles and things like that. Um, who do you read for? I mean, you you yeah, I have to have some time to do some reading. <laughs> I'm assuming. Who are some of your science uh, writers or some of natural history writers that you really admire? Well, Jonathan Weiner. Mm -hmm. um, 
I read I read the books of my former students, which are now proliferating so much that I can't have, I have a time to keep up with that. And uh, I read very miscellaneously. Um, what am I reading right now? I'm reading about I'm reading Ambrose's uh, Stephen Ambrose's book on Lewis and Clark. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm one of my favorite authors, Stephen Ambrose. And uh, I, uh, I I read. The answer is that I read completely miscellaneously and. Uh, uh, more for recreation than anything else now in my work such as you know there's always a great pile of things that need to be read and studied in order to get ready for the next piece of writing and so i will seek uh i'll seek uh, things quite quite different and historical subjects and novels and so on that mm -hmm. uh, that uh, are you know they're recreational for me yeah you, you said that you're concentrating on fish now why fish well, I have a um, an interest in in certain fish that run up rivers in to spawn, and and I'm just trying to do an article about that subject about ocean fish that come into uh, freshwater. Mm -hmm. Let's go to David in Durham, North Carolina. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm a big fan and actually a teacher of scientific writing, and I've used uh, Mr. McPhee's uh, work uh, a number of times as examples. Um, my question is this. My sister is a geophysicist. Actually, she gave me the annals uh, as a present last year. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask whether uh, the narrative thrust of the work, the kind of road trip angle, uh, paints geology too descriptively and shortchanges the more theoretical computational work that is the source of a lot of interesting stuff that's being done uh, today. Well, I, I guess someone would have to say that who felt that. The... The people in this latter category that you describe have told me that if they are not in touch with field geologists, they they feel they're not in touch. Mm. The the uh, great bulk of very important work in geology is being done in in uh, in geophysics and in places where you, where you don't go out and right. bang on an on an outcrop. But it it's all related. And remember, the, the my purpose is to just, is not to to uh, Teach fundamental geology in all respects, but to, but to describe that the the uh, geology of North America at about this latitude, New, the New York latitude, uh, right. from ocean to ocean, and and uh, that's what I set out to do. I, uh, there's a passage on the tension between uh, so-called black box black box geologists and uh, field geologists uh, somewhere in rising from the plains. Right. Right. But I don't think it's these things are incompatible. No, no. All right, thanks for calling, okay, David. Thank you. Would you would you not consider then your books uh, reference books, John McPhee? Well, to the extent that they serve as ref to the to the extent that they can serve as reference books, that's fine. In fact, Annals of the Former World does uh, touch on a great many geological subjects, including the one that we've just been mentioning, and. Uh, uh, I mean, a whole lot of what's in Annals of the Former World, to go back to David's question, I mean, rests on seismology and geophysics. Uh, the whole of uh, Book 5 in here is is uh, in that category. And uh, you don't understand plate tectonics without it and, and so forth. Uh, in For this reason, when, Annals of the, when we were preparing Annals of the Former World, uh, we did uh, an index. I, mm -hmm. I worked for three months on in, on email with a wonderful person named Julie Kawabata in uh, Medford, Oregon. Who in no sorry in Portland? Who is uh, a um, 
an indexer. And we went back and forth because she wasn't a, you know, her knowledge of geology was not at the, uh, quite mine. And my knowledge of indexing was nil. And, uh, <laughs> and this indexes is not short and it, it helps the reference aspect. Also, the book begins with 14 pages, which describe the whole project. It's a roadmap to the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And thus, thus you could either read it through if you wanted to, or use it as a reference because all in those fourteen pages and the and the table of contents tense that recapitulates them, all the subjects that are covered in the book and where they are are mentioned. So it would serve as a reference mm-hmm. uh, with uh, given that that uh, item up front. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. You're listening to a 1999 conversation with author John McPhee, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Annals of the Former World. Holly in uh, Chelmsford, uh, Massachusetts. Hi. Hi. Uh, I'm so happy I got through. I got in my car with a few minutes left of your program and realized my favorite author was on. Uh, uh, I, it's, I'm honored to speak with you. <laughs> Thank you I wanted Holly. to say I was a liberal arts major in college 10 years ago, and I was assigned to read The Curve of Binding Energy. And I thought, I groaned because it was nuclear fission at something that didn't interest me at all. And I I tell you, not only did it open up that whole world for me, but it opened up um, the power of nonfiction literature and essays and uh, and introduced me to to John McPhee. And I came away with an understanding of nuclear fission as well. Uh, So I just wanted to to relay that, that it it really... uh, it was it was a moment in college that I dreaded, and uh, and now I have come to appreciate. John, John, do you have a vision of people reading your book as they re- as you write it? What they they who they are or what they'll get out of it? No, I have no idea. Except that I always have an attitude toward readers that they know more than I do. <laughs> is that right? You bet. Does that mean that you the 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 style that you use is 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 to readers who you think. Uh, no more than you do, or you? Say- well, I just think it makes sense. If you if you publish a book and X thousand people read it, there's going to be people in there, and a lot of them who are swifter and uh, subtler and uh, more sensitive and everything else than you are. I mean, it just has to, has to be. And uh, I have that reader in mind. So you're you're afraid I, of criticism? It sounds like no, not at all. I I mean that you 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 leave you let the you stop short of of nudging the reader in the ribs and saying get it uh-huh. you don't you don't do that oh no it's not being afraid of criticism it's a it's a a matter of um the what's what is in and what is not in the composition well it's a fantastic book annals of the former world and i thank you very much for joining us and talking about it this hour thank you ira it's a pleasure you're welcome john mcphee uh, who is a staff writer for the new yorker and the author of annals of the former world published by Ferrar strauss and Giroux, and uh, it's a great uh, book to pick up that conversation was recorded 22 years ago hard to believe in june of 1999 and if you like taking a look back at science history then check out our newsletter series science friday rewind in which we look back on the decades of discovery recorded in Science Friday's 30 Years of Archives. From the career of Jane Goodall to the rise of the Earth Day environmental movement to the history of HIV and AIDS research, hop into our audio time machine for a trip through science history. You'll find that and more, all at sciencefriday.com rewind. And in case you missed any part of this program and you would like to hear it again, 
subscribe to our podcasts, or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Of course, every day now is Science Friday. Oh, and on the Sci-Fi Vox Pop app, we know it's been hot. Have you been perspiring heavily this summer? I know I have. Feeling clammy, moist, or otherwise damp? Send us your questions about sweat for an upcoming show. Yeah, we're going to talk about everything you wanted to know about sweat. That's on the Sci-Fi Vox Pop app, wherever you get your apps. Of course, you can always say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us the classic way, our address, sci-fi at sciencefriday.com. Please send us feedback and tell us what you'd like us to cover. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.